The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, after the weekend, concluding the last dance. That was a fun couple of episodes, wasn't it? News out of California. And lesson of the year number five. This is a big Monday, ladies and gentlemen. It's May 18th. How the hell did that happen? We've been in official quarantine in California for just one day under two months. And it feels like simultaneously a very long time and also no time at all because time has no meaning. Over two months since the NBA shut down on March 11th. Man, this is, there's a lot of these things here that no matter how much I read about them, I really couldn't prepare myself adequately because even at the beginning I thought oh all right well we'll just deal with this and then we'll move on to the next thing this is a big deal but it's a you know and then here we are way down the line I mean I I did not think that this was going to be this long of an ordeal maybe I should have I just don't I read a lot of stuff right at the beginning and it didn't seem to indicate to me that it was going to be this long but then you know, you started to see countries in Western Europe, and anyway, so on and so forth. Welcome to the pod, everybody. I'm Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. Hoop ball. Sometimes I say it so fast that it sounds like I'm calling it hoop hall. We're not in the hoop hall. Maybe we are in the hoop hall, but this is hoop ball. Hoop-ball.com is the website, at hoop ball fantasy on Twitter. At hoop ball tweets is actually the umbrella account if you want to cover all of our different team-specific pods and gambling and all that good stuff. That's everything under HoopBall Tweets. And then HoopBall Fantasy is all the fantasy basketball stuff. Good things going on at HoopBall as usual. Uh, our buddy, friend of the program, Steve Vitovich, has broken down the Utah Jazz in the latest fantasy snapsha- uh, snapshots, excuse me, not Snapchats, for HoopBall. Uh, Suriel, who many of you know from our live shows. He's been a part of those for a couple of years. He's also breaking down Joe Ingles' season. We have a look at the Miami Heat over hoop ball as well. Some dynasty rookie rankings. Good things still going, as I keep saying every time I do this show over at HoopBall. Uh, big congratulations here at the beginning of today's program to one of our own, Devin Ellington, one of the hosts of the HoopBall Gambling Show. That's today in sports betting at HoopBall Gaming. Devin welcomed into the world a child first thing this morning. That picture is available on Twitter as well. So big congrats to Devin. Wishing dad, mom, and baby health and all the best things here as uh, another lunatic. I can say that because I am one. Brings a child into this deal in the middle of a pandemic. We didn't all plan it out this way. I know Devin didn't. I didn't either to just have a kid during a pandemic. But uh, here we are, my my uh, new son is about eight weeks old now. <laughs> really, like right at the beginning of this pandemic. March 25th was uh, my kid Theodore's birthday. Uh, so congratulations again to Devin Ellington. Well done. Obviously, no today in sports betting earlier today. Uh, but Devin has assured me 
like the complete degenerate weirdo that he is, that he'll have a show out in the not-too-distant future. So uh, that's great news on the hoopball front. He joins a long list all of a sudden here of hoopball personalities with uh, infants and newborns during the pandemic, including our founder, although uh, Brewski's kiddo is something like six or seven months old now, I think. So that's a little bit farther along. Uh, David Williams, one of the hosts of the Hoopball Grizzlies podcast. They had their kid uh, about three months back. And then uh, yours truly. So Hoopball Babies, we are everywhere. We are everywhere. We are poorly rested lovers of all things basketball here at Hoopball. I really don't know what order I want to talk about things today. Uh, the lesson of the year you guys have been prepped on, it's going to be picks 72 through 108, and the lesson as basically was the lesson for uh, lesson three, which I think, no, maybe it was lesson two. I've lost track. It doesn't matter. Uh, was talking about getting more aggressive in that 60 to 75 range. Uh, the lesson for 102 to 108 is a little bit of a tweak on that. We also have episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance to talk about, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls documentary that came to a conclusion yesterday over on ESPN. And uh, then also news out of California on the sports front. And I'm thinking maybe we start there because it's the most contemporary of any of the items on our docket for today in that Yes, The Last Dance did just happen yesterday, but it's about a topic that occurred 30 years ago. And, okay, 20, whatever, doesn't matter, 22, 23 years ago. It's about stuff that happened anywhere from 30 to, about 30 to 20 years ago, 20 to 30 years ago. So that's not exactly news. It's not news. It's cool. It's something that happened, and we're going to talk about it, but it's not news. And then... Breaking down the lesson of the year is something that we're going to be reassessing come fantasy draft season, whenever the hell that is next time around, probably November, if I had to guess, maybe even December of this year. So that also is not the most pressing thing. I think the most pressing note today is that California, which I realize doesn't apply to all of you, there are some of you listening to this podcast that are in California, but it does have, it has repercussions that echo across the sports landscape. Today, Governor Gavin Newsom, our governor in California, who has to this point been uh, extraordinarily cautious with everything out here as it relates to coronavirus. And I'm not, this is not an opinion segment, which is bad radio. I know we're on fact based here. Pedantic Dan, as it always tends to go. Uh, we're, we're getting into the weeds on this thing. I am not going to express an opinion on whether or not I agree with any of the measures that have happened so far. Suffice it to say, with an eight-week-old, you guys can probably guess I'm a fan of being relatively careful right now. I have a little blob of a creature in my home who basically can't defend himself against anything. Uh, and there's a baby, too. Ha, yes, self-deprecating humor. The, the fact that arguably the safest and most cautious state in the nation, California. I think there's a, a pretty good case to be made that California's been basically the most cautious state as it goes with coronavirus. Shut down very early. It's a giant state, well-populated, you know, highest number in the nation, all that stuff with the biggest county in the nation. 
took steps early and often to lock everybody down, much to our chagrin, I'm sure, as it happened, because all of us were thinking, what, wait, what, really? And it was kind of before things had really blown up, but then then they blew up. They blew up in other places, and, you know, to California's credit, as a state, it's, you know, top six, seven, eight kind of thing with with mortality at this point, with deaths, and that's actually pretty good news for the state because you're talking about, you know, kind of a per-person kind of thing. There are just a lot of people out here. So all that to say, the evidence to this point in California has said to us that California's been extremely careful. So basically, if California's going to do something, it's probably, if it's, you know, to shut things down, doesn't tell us a whole lot. If it's to open things up, it tells us that things are moving markedly, strongly in the right direction. And today, earlier today, California noted that there are now, there's a couple of pieces of news here. There are exemptions in place. Counties can apply for exemptions from various rules that had put into place for reopening counties across the state to make it easier for counties that have been less severely impacted by the virus to start bringing things back towards normal. With, of course, certain caveats to however it's done. That's cool and all, but that doesn't directly talk about what we're here to discuss, which is sports. The other note from the Gavin Newsom press conference earlier today is that he has stated that expecting by mid- early June, I believe was the, li- the the exact nomenclature, which is two weeks from today, by the way, June 1st, ha, my 37th birthday, he's expecting that by early June, empty stadiums will be good to go for sporting events. Meaning that's a lot of stuff being all encompassed into one statement. It's very easy to say, go ahead and play some sports in an empty stadium because the first thing you think is, oh, well, I mean, let's say baseball, for instance. You've got nine people on the field playing defense, none of whom are anywhere near each other. Pitcher and catcher are 60 feet, six inches apart, and that's generally the closest. Well, uh, I guess you could argue maybe third base and shortstop can get closer than that from time to time. Do first and second base, eh, you know, lefty pull situation, I guess. In any event, they're not too close together. They're well outside of this six-foot social distancing thing, and the only time players on the baseball diamond get closer than that is if a runner's being held on at first base and then home plate umpire, catcher, and batter. Three people are relatively tight to one another at home plate. The catcher, of course, has (laughs) some sort of facial gear on. You could throw in a little PPE under that thing and nobody would be the wiser. Umpire could do the same thing. Um, all that to say, if you were just thinking about that element, that's fine. That sounds easy. But in this, in the vacuum that we just described, everybody's healthy. What if somebody wasn't? Well, then it comes down to the testing element. And basically what's being said in this press conference is by early June, the infection rate will be low enough combined with the testing being available enough where you guys can play pro sports in California and we can keep this under control. I firmly believe that everything that's happening here in California is going to be under that same guise of, not guise necessarily, but the same umbrella of what 
Adam Silver was talking about in the NBA, where he was like, look, if somebody gets tested positive and that's going to shut us down, that means we weren't ready to start to begin with. So the fact that California is saying we're ready to start is, to me, California saying we have enough fail-safes in place, enough testing, enough low enough rates, all that stuff, to where if something does crop up on the sports front, we're ready to deal with it. And from that standpoint, you can look back at Thursday's show from last week where we spent an entire podcast just talking about Adrian Wojnarowski and Sam Sharanya's two tweets apiece. This has been, by all accounts, about four days of pretty damn good sports news, at least compared to the way things had gone. You know, if you go back to the day the NBA shut down, March 11th, you're talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We're almost at ten weeks now from that point. And I would say Thursday, last week, so nine weeks and one day since the NBA shut down, was probably the first time we got any, what I would call, good news. Any, like, really... Not just, not nebulous either. Like, good news, you could actually wrap your arms around a little bit. And then, to me, more of it today. Because not only did California put out a note like that, but we also got one from the governor of Texas and the governor of New York. That's Abbott and Cuomo, if I'm not mistaken. This isn't a politics podcast, so pardon me if I, if I screw up on any governor names on the show. Now, this might not actually be that big of a deal for the NBA. Because by all accounts, we're hearing about them looking at places like Las Vegas and Orlando as campus or bubble or whatever pod-style tournament play, regular season playoffs or both. But to me, this news is very large, specifically for baseball. Definitely for football, down the line a little bit, but specifically for baseball. Because if baseball can get their economic stuff worked out and who the hell knows if or when that might happen if that can get sorted out suddenly you've got three states that account for not the majority of teams in that sport but not far from it we got five mlb teams in california alone multiple more in new york multiple more in texas you put all those together and you've got i mean you've got like a third of the league So this is a big, big day. It's a big day. It's not the end-all. It's not the be-all. It's neither. But it's big news. And it's good news that states are now saying they're ready. And so it's going to come down to whether or not the leagues are going to be able to get the various pieces in place. And they're, I believe, starting to think that they will. So I'm growing more optimistic on a weekly basis. And lately, it's been every couple of days. To me, that's a big deal. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not as big a deal as it seems, but it, it sure feels like we are inching closer with little breadcrumbs of good news every couple of days. Just a couple of minutes now on The Last Dance, which came to its, I don't want to say thrilling conclusion yesterday because we all kind of knew what was coming next, but its conclusion last night, and that was a fun ride. I enjoyed all of that stuff right down from the... Uh, flu game slash food poisoning game slash conspiracy theory game to the big shots, the non-push-off or push-off, depending on 
which team you were rooting for in that series. And I think the reason that I'm starting to... You know, it was it was a different experience for me, and I've talked about this on other Monday episodes recently. I didn't really get into the NBA until around Jordan's baseball foray. That was that was close to when I started to sort of pick up my NBA interest. I was almost all baseball prior to then. And so that second championship run, I'm starting to look at a lot more of the players that I was used to, the players that I kind of grew up on in that that second stint, the uh, the Bulls conquering the Pacers, conquering the Utah Jazz. These were the teams that I actually grew up on, even though I was, you know, I was certainly old enough to be paying attention to the Bulls' first half of their dynasty run. I just wasn't. I'm not afraid to admit that. I was a baseball fan in 91. I was a baseball fan... I mean, I still am. And then I picked up kind of the baseball-basketball combo, and I remember it, I, you know, I've talked about the my Laker fandom beginning kind of in the Sedale Threat era, the Cedric Sabalos era, and that was all Lakers of the mid-'90s. Lakers of the mid-'90s. There's your calendar. When was, when was Sedale Threat a Laker? What were those years? He was a Laker from 91 to 96. So there you go. That's when I started paying attention to the NBA. I didn't know Sedale 3 was a supersonic before that. I wasn't paying attention yet. So that was kind of cool for me on the documentary front to see a lot of the stuff that was going on just a couple of years before I started paying attention to the NBA. And then also be reminded of the stuff that was happening when I really first started to pay attention to a sport that I've come to love and dictates most of my existence, at least on the work side, is basketball. I um, I learned about Steve Kerr's family in the documentary yesterday. I don't know how many of you guys knew about that backstory. I, I definitely did not. That was pretty interesting, and I thought it was also kind of noteworthy that when he said that he and, and Michael never talked about their fathers, considering both were lost in tragic circumstances. Not, I mean, certainly the 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 lead up to each of them was very different, but the emotion around it was not that dissimilar. Both uh, young, Steve younger than Michael when when he lost his own, but losing their fathers to sort of tragic murders is pretty wild and I just not why I mean it's awful but um interesting that it didn't really come up I thought it would have uh very cool to see uh, and, and maybe this is just the way the documentary wanted to outline it Michael using his teammates more as the seasons wore on and then ultimately needing to be the guy to sort of pick everyone up in the end and then kind of ride off into the sunset and there's all this, and one of the things I guess that I disagree with at, towards the end of the documentary, and, and certainly this, you know, it, it was a, a series of episodes put out to, this was to glorify a team that was already jam-packed with glory. I think you had to know that going into it, but it seemed like the reactions from the fans and the players on why the team didn't last through that season was maybe a little bit clouded 
in the fandom of it all. You know, Dennis Rodman basically didn't play after that season. What did he log? Like another 30 games in his whole career? Pippen was good, but he was on the downslope. Jordan was on the downslope. We saw Michael come back a couple years later, and he still scored a lot of points, but he had lost most of his lift by that point. The idea that they could have brought everybody back and made a run at a seventh championship, yeah, they could have. And, I, you know, Michael made a good point towards the end of the documentary saying, look, do you think people wouldn't have signed a one-year contract to just run it back one more time? Yeah, they probably would have. But also, maybe that would have taken some of the shine off of it. Like, what if they all did come back the next year and won, you know, 49 games and lost in the first or second round of the playoffs? Doesn't that feel like it might have wiped out some of the mystique? As it stands now, that team sits on an unknown. Would they have won championships the years that Jordan went to play baseball? Would they have won a championship the year they broke the team up after the last dance? The fact that we can ask those questions and say, wow, could it have been seven, eight, nine championships for this team? To me, I mean, the middle years, the baseball years, you can make a much stronger argument for than the ending one. And most people are talking about the ending one. To me, I think it's actually better to have broken the team up and they never actually lost their throne. No one ever unseated the championship-level Chicago Bulls. That's a pretty damn cool thing to be able to say. Yeah, they didn't run it back, which, you know, maybe from a what-could-have-been standpoint, you leave a few things unanswered, and that might eat at the players a little bit. But from a, a legend standpoint, it just doesn't get any bigger. They run three in a row, twice, and both times didn't try to go for four, really. I know the remaining pieces might have the first go-round, but they really never made a try at four in a row. That's wild. That's wild. It's going to keep the debate going forever because we'll never have the answer to it. Could the Jordan-era Bulls have won another championship? Yeah, maybe. At the In the middle? Of course. At the end? I don't know. Most other champions get dethroned. They go past their peak or they lose one key player and the rest isn't enough or some other team just gets good enough. The Jordan era Bulls were never dethroned. And no real facsimile of them was dethroned because he was gone. If a team loses its best player, it's not the same team anymore. Even if everyone else stays the same, if you lose your best player, you're a different team. You know, like, think about all the examples of this. There are plenty of teams in history that lost their superstar. You really wouldn't call them the same team. It's not that era anymore. You define a team by its best player. Or its most recognizable. So the documentary comes to a close, which means those segments on our Monday shows also come to a close. If you had any thoughts of things that we could talk about on the front, do hit me up. Uh, if you want to hear more about The Last Dance, check out the Hoopball Bulls podcast with host Greg Mraz. New episode today on the final two parts of The Last Dance. He breaks down the entire 
two hours of television in far more detail than I do because Greg's a lifelong Bulls fan. And I'm a lifelong baseball fan. (laughs) And a, as we mentioned, basketball fan for the last 25 years or so. Here's the part of the show that fantasy listeners were waiting for, and that is our final lesson of the year. And there isn't a whole lot left to talk about, which is, I know, you know, you go on, you watch these late night shows over the years, maybe not right now, because they're weird right now, but, you know, late night hosts always say, we got a great show for you tonight. And me saying, there's really not much here is sort of the opposite of saying, we got a great show coming up here in a minute. But it does, this is the, the cinching up the belt buckle on our five lessons of the year. This is finally closing the books on the things that I personally, after playing this season of fantasy basketball, will be adjusting to my own strategy, and I hope you guys will come along with me on that journey. So, starting around pick 60 is where we made a lot of changes as a result of this season. And really, you can blame almost everything that I'm changing on one panic double pick talked about it a million times on the show now the Jonathan Isaac Julius Randall pair that I took at 60 and 61 and some of you are in this league with me it was a total panic move I had eight guys in my queue with 11 picks before my name and all eight went away I thought no chance I don't get at least one of these guys and they all went away with the last of those names being Jonas Valanciunas who was picked immediately before my pick of course that's how that goes But as I also said on those previous episodes, these types of situations happen on a smaller scale pretty often. You put four guys in your queue with six or seven picks to go, and they all get chewed up. You put two guys in your queue with three picks to go, and they both get chewed up. It has nothing to do with the magnitude of the queue destruction that occurred to me in this one league. In fact, that just brought it into into focus because it's one that I I don't know that I'm ever going to forget. That's the fastest I've ever seen my queue wiped out in any fantasy draft to date. Eight names, 11 people. It took them all. It took them all. And it broke my heart. And while it was breaking my heart, I made that idiotic move of instead of taking my next tier of guys, I took some dudes that I thought, well, I guess I'm surprised these guys are falling. But I never thought, do I actually want these guys? As it turns out, Jonathan Isaac was a good pick until he got hurt, but Julius Randle was the one that's chewing at me. And will forever. It will forever. I wanted nothing to do with Julius Randle this season, and somehow, in that moment, I thought, hmm, didn't expect him to be here. Click. Idiot, Bespris. Instead of, and I know we're repeating lesson two or three or whatever it was, instead of going to my next tier, which was Shea Gilgis-Alexander... Daniel O'Gallinari. I think you could even throw Jamal Murray into that mix. Kelly Oubre, Gordon Hayward, Demonis Sabonis, Ricky Rubio. <sighs> what could have been? Although I did end up getting Ricky Rubio. He fell all the way back to me. The point of that lesson a couple weeks ago was that when your cue runs out of your Not your top tier. These are not the top tier guys. Top tier guys are the dudes you're taking in rounds one, two, and maybe three. And then you get into those 
falling old men, tripping and falling and eating the walkers with the tennis balls on the bottom that are just going too far down the charts because they're not that exciting. Clint Capella's and Chris Paul's and LaMarcus Aldridge's. And you guys know the type. You guys know the type. Kyle Lowry fits the bill. And then if you go into the next tier of falling guys, you've got Rob Covington and Al Horford and Brooke Lopez and Kevin Love and Tobias Harris and CJ McCollum and Malcolm Brogdon and Jonas Valanciunas. Not not all of those guys performed admirably, but those are the guys coming into the season that it seemed like were falling into the 50s and 60s, oftentimes the 60s. And I thought, all right, well, we can probably get these guys in the 60s, 50s at the earliest, and a lot of them can just sort of close their eyes and hit their ADP. Like, I felt Rob Covington could close his eyes and hit his ADP, and then getting traded to Houston was fantastic. I thought the same thing about Al Horford, and then he got benched late in the season, and that sort of knocked that one off. He was hanging on by a thread as it was. Brooke Lopez, he took a step back with his shooting this year, just didn't take as many threes, but he was still fine. You know, this guy was drafted around 60, and he was just a little bit behind that. And Kevin Love, same deal. Tobias Harris, better than that. CJ McCollum, a little, right around that mark. Brogdon, hot start, cold finish. Valanchunas, better than that. So a lot of those guys, to me, that was a group of dudes where I thought, you can't, these can't screw up. They can be slightly behind their ADP. They could potentially even be well in front of it if things break the right way. Covington, Tobias, Valanchunas. I mean, there's plenty of examples in there of guys that beat their ADP. But there aren't really examples in there outside of maybe post-benching Al Horford of guys in that group that just stunk. And Brogdon stunk after Oladipo came back. When all those guys run out, normally it was closer to 70 in most drafts because most drafts have 12 teams and there's, you know, maybe three, three or four guys in those, out of those 12 teams that are just a little bit less intense, maybe five, six teams, hyper intense, a couple of them middling levels of intensity and a few lower. And so a couple of those guys fall even a little bit farther because someone out there in, that, in those leagues is going to be going for, you know, John Morant at 55 for some, some crazy reason, or Blake Griffin at 60 or something like that. And that's creating opportunities for my old men to fall an extra five to 10 spots. Now, in the most competitive league, which is the one that I'm staring down, where I did end up with Julius Randle, those guys were gone by 59. All of my guys were gone by 59. That's pretty unusual. And so it caught me off guard. But it did bring into focus this notion of being ready to pounce on your next group of dudes. You know, why am I taking Julius Randle? There was no great reason for me to take this guy. Popcorn stats, that's never been my thing. I'm way outside of my comfort zone. When I knew in my heart of hearts that Shea, Gilgis Alexander, he had this massive upside in a big role this year. Ubre, same thing. We saw him dominate late last season in Phoenix. Gordon Hayward, this is a guy who was inside the top 40 consistently when healthy and he was finally getting back. And he's getting drafted near 70. Sabonis, huge upside with more minutes under his belt. These guys are right there. They're right there for me. 
So as we turn our attention now to the that 72 to 108 range, which is generally when that group of guys has now expired, you're looking at a pretty weird chunk of basketball players. I'll read off the names that went 73 to 108 in this competitive league. I think it's illuminating. It's rounds uh, 7, 8, and 9. Round 7. And we'll do this sort of lightning round format because it's not going to be the same for every league, but this is a pretty competitive league, so you're hearing the guys that are going inside the top 110. Uh, We'll start at number 73 and just work our way forward fast. Lonzo Ball, Montrez Harrell, Terry Rozier, Demonis Sabonis, Mark Gasol, Larry Nance Jr., Miles Bridges, Aaron Gordon, Karis LeVert, DeJounte Murray, Hassan Whiteside, Derek Favors. That's round seven. Round eight, Ricky Rubio, Jeff Teague, Zach Collins, Freddie Van Vliet, Jeremy Lamb, Tomas Sadaransky, Mikhail Bridges, Jared Allen, Victor Oladipo, Joe Ingles, Lou Williams, JaVale McGee. Round nine, Dillon Wright, TJ Warren, Sergi Baca, Dwayne Dedman, Marcus Smart, Dwight Powell, Gary Harris, Ennis Cantor, Brandon Clark, Brandon Ingram, Justice Winslow, and J.J. Redick. Looking at those three rounds, there's a pretty clear cut that the first half of the names I read off were a lot better than the second half of the names I read off. Round seven, as we mentioned, Lonzo Ball, I'm going to list the names of guys that ended up being fantasy relevant in this one. Out of the 12, Lonzo Ball, Montres, Harold, Terry Rozier, Demonis Sabonis. I'm going to say not Marcus Gasol because he started slowly, warmed up, and then spent the rest of the year hurt. Uh, Larry Nance Jr. ended up really good. Aaron Gordon really turned it on late. Levert had a bad year but was awesome the last week, but I'm going to just say no because it wasn't enough. DeJounte Murray was good. Hassan Whiteside was brilliant, and Derek Favors was also pretty damn good for stretches that's nine of the 12 guys were fantasy relevant for pretty much the entire season and if you want to take Aaron Gordon out of the mix because he was much better his last month and a half uh and almost pulled his way into the double digit category that's fine you can even call it eight out of 12 but an argument could be made for Marcus Gasol Aaron Gordon and Karis Levert which would have made it 11 out of 12 meanwhile rounds eight and nine In round eight, you've got Ricky Rubio, Freddie Van Vliet, Jeremy Lamb, pre-injury, Mikhail Bridges, late in the year, Jared Allen, I'm not going to give it to Victor Oladipo, he wasn't very good, and that's it, that's five out of 12. And round nine, TJ Warren, Serge Ibaka, Marcus Smart, Brandon Clark, Brandon Ingram, also five out of 12. Here's the thing, that doesn't tell the whole story. Because there's thousands and thousands of fantasy leagues, and these players are going to be drafted in a mixed jumble, and it's why we use ADP when we're coming up with draft strategy. But this was one of my most competitive leagues this year, and there was a severe drop-off after Jeremy Lamb. Because Jeremy Lamb, Freddie Van Vliet, Ricky Rubio were three of the first five picks in round eight that were also good. So you can make the argument that 11 of the first 17 of these picks were good and like 7 of the last 19. Uh, Am I getting that right? 7 of the last 18? No, that is 19. 7 of the last 19 were good after 11 of the first 17. So, you know, you're putting it right around pick 90 where there was this 
severe drop-off in rate of hit, pick hit rate, PHR. The PHR plummeted at 90. Why is that? Because this isn't built on ADPs. This is the actual draft result from this league. And I could go through and I could match up the ADPs of these guys with where they actually went. And, and honestly, Jeremy Lamb, he was drafted around before TJ Warren. But those two guys, their ADPs were pretty much the same. And Brandon Clark's ADP was pretty much the same. A lot of these guys were hovering in that 90 to 110 ADP range. So you can't really base it all off of that either. First of all, this speaks to the competitive nature of this particular league. People were getting their hits in. The best fantasy players were largely being taken before the ones that weren't as good. I mean, it takes you back to our lesson from last week when we were talking about how, you know, three or four guys in each round after the ninth round were successful. The fact that it was fairly linear in this league tells you how sharp everyone was in this league from being like 11 or 12 out of 12 to, you know, 9 out of 12 to 8 out of 12 to 5 out of 12 to 3 out of 12. This was a very smart and sharp league. So the way you deal with that is being more aggressive. Again, you can make a lot of different cases in your head about what you should do if you have pick 77 or 70 or 80 or 82 or whatever the hell it doesn't matter in this 73 to 108 range how do you how does your list look i mean do you have lonzo ball and dejounte murray and ricky rubio on your list and you're trying to figure out which one you should take first the key here as it was in our last discussion and the discussion before that is that you really really need to have your list of guys and kick it into gear when the previous page of guys runs out. So you've got your early round dudes who, if you're following the Bespers method, are extremely safe fantasy picks early. Durable, safe, Play 75 or more games. Stay real tight to their ADP. We've talked about that. I'm not going to do it again on this one. First three rounds generally operate in that fashion. At least the first two. Always the first two. Third round, you start to dabble in the do you have any falling guys kind of thing. So let's say sort of round three, then rounds four and five for sure. These are guys, now, with the exception somehow of that one league I keep talking about, those are where you're picking up your falling guys. Every once in a while, you might get a falling guy that drops into round six, and if you're in a league that's too easy for you, you might even get one in round seven. Generally not, but sometimes. And if you get one of your falling dudes in round seven that you think has upside to, you know, be back inside the top 50, well, you should probably run that league. You should be dominating. Like, if you're getting Tobias Harris's to fall into the... Or Jonas Valanciunas to fall into the seventh round, you should be crushing people. 
Because that also means that you're probably getting Kyle Lowry in the fifth round. Oh, what a beatdown. Maybe you're getting Chris Paul in the fourth. But in most leagues, it's not going to be that simple. And so let's assume that this is the hardest possible method. You use your falling guys, and it only gets you through your fourth round pick. Yikes. Well, rounds five and six, those should be your next tier of highest upside. Those are probably the guys you'd call the buzz guys. How many buzz guys are left over after your falling guys are out of play? Who was a buzz guy this year? Thomas Bryant had a lot of buzz, unnecessarily as it may be. Actually, Brewski was low on Thomas Bryant this year. He nailed that one. Jaron Jackson had a ton of buzz, but he was gone already. Bam Adebayo had a ton of buzz. He was gone already. Who were some of the other buzz guys this year? Shea was a buzz guy. He was still on the board after pick 60 pretty often. Ubre, we've talked about. He had some buzz. Bonus had some buzz. These are the guys that were on my list as the next group, and those are kind of the buzz guys. So that's probably the way you, if you wanted to give them names, that's the way you categorize it. After your set of buzz guys, then you go into this next grouping, which in this particular case was in this league, Gallinari, Jamal Murray. I think they probably fall into that category. Who else can we throw into that? Rozier, maybe. Larry Nance, DeJounte Murray, Hassan Whiteside, Derek Favors, Ricky Rubio. Freddie Van Vliet. And I'm going to cut it off there. And I would call those guys almost like your second group of falling dudes. A lot of those guys went later than they should have. Gallinari, there's still a big cloud over his name, and he was going at 67. Consistently better than that. In nine category on a per rank, he's... Always better than that. He was 51 this year on a 9-cat per game. And last year, if I recall, he was better than that. Yeah, he was 28 last season. The Gallo, he's in your second group of falling stars. He might have been in the first if he didn't have that injury stuff hanging over his head. Jamal Murray, who's like C.J. McCollum light. He's, he fell a little bit too far because he's actually turned out to be a little bit boring. Strange, I know. I don't know if I'd call Terry Rozier boring, but he's he was, we knew, relatively safe. He was a guy I wasn't taking anywhere in nine-category leagues, but there was a certain safety to him. DeJounte Murray, we knew his stat set would keep him from bottoming out too much. Hassan Whiteside, there was a little bit of risk there. Rubio, there was some upside there with a new situation. Van Vliet moving into a lot of minutes. So now you've got this second group of high upside, slight risk falling dudes. Gallo's risk is injury. Jamal Murray's risk is weapons in Denver. Lonzo Ball's risk, new team. Rozier's risk, field goal percent. Larry Nance, playing time. Murray, coming off injury. Whiteside, free throw. There's a risk. Ricky Rubio, was he just the guy that he became in Utah? Freddie Van Vliet, does it translate? So now you get into this group of upside falling dudes who have one red flag that you can talk yourself out of. 
And when those guys run out, then you move into sort of the early portions of what we discussed on last week's show, which is, or two weeks ago, which is the strategy for end of draft, meaning you assemble your list of reasons, you list the list of ways that your target guys can get to their mark. Jeremy Lamb, first name on that list here. How does he get to his target mark? Well, Noel Oladipo for a long time, and he has a really nice fantasy game and a good system. Jared Allen. This was supposed to be kind of a wait on Kevin Durant year, so figured he would play plenty in Brooklyn. Yeah, he didn't play plenty, but he was good enough. TJ Warren. Same general argument as Jeremy Lamb. Dude was good in Phoenix when they kept him healthy enough. Serge Ibaka, slow, easy plod. Marcus Smart, more leadership role in Boston. Brandon Clark, rookie upside, great percentages, roto guy. Brandon Ingram, who I was too afraid to draft, but, you know, there was big upside there for him. So you you look at these guys and you make a case. Okay, who in this list is going to be playing a crap ton of minutes? Who has a great fantasy stat set? And you just start to wipe guys out that don't fit the mold. Like Mikhail Bridges. I wouldn't have drafted him at the start of the year because it wasn't clear that he was going to have a role. And his fantasy stat set is fine, but he's a super low usage guy, so he's going to need to be on the floor a lot. And Oladipo, he was hurt. I wasn't taking him. And Joe Ingles, I didn't see his path to start the year. That one scared me. Lou Williams, always overrated. Now Paul George and Kawhi Leonard in town? No thanks. JaVale McGee was drafted in there. I actually liked him, but not this early. DeLon Wright, that was one that fooled me. I thought he'd be better. He would have been on my list here, and then he just fell on his face in Dallas. Seemed like they wanted him. Dwayne Dedman as a backup in Sacramento? No thanks. Dwight Powell, I thought he'd be better. Turned out he started the year hurt, and then just when he began to figure things out, then he got really hurt. Gary Harris, this is way too early for him. Low upside play. Ennis Cantor, low upside play. Interesting, but low upside. And so, you know, you go through your list of guys, and then there's this this drop-off. But I think it's fair to say that the assessment And this is in your most competitive leagues, as opposed to all leagues. If you're looking at all leagues, I think the last, as we talked about it before, after pick 108, things really get into that find guys that are going to be playing a ton of minutes or have really good fantasy stat sets. In competitive leagues, you probably extend that about 10 picks earlier, into the mid-90s. That's when you have to start digging, going for gems. You could pick anyone at that point. You know, whoever took Gary Harris in the middle of round nine, you can make just as reasonable an argument to take Evan Fournier at that spot. And those two guys went 40 picks apart in this league. It's a free-for-all. But the first half of that group that we just talked about really wasn't in a competitive league. So I think here's the way you want to sum it up. And we're going to roll it all together. In competitive, and I mean real competitive, not like your friends think you're good competitive, like you're in a league with people that all read multiple fantasy sites daily. 
in super competitive leagues, your top 25 to 30, that's go real safe, strong stars, durability. 26 to about 45. Eh, 26 to about 55. Or even 60 is your falling stars grouping. 60 to 70, or even 75, is your breakout candidate spot. By the way, that doesn't mean that breakout candidates won't go earlier than that. It's just where you start to grab yours. So keep your list. Like I said, you might have had Adebayo and Jaron Jackson and Thomas Bryan or whoever your breakout guys were. You just have to cross them off as someone else drafts them earlier than you. 75 to 90 is second-tier falling guys. Not stars. I can't call them stars anymore. Falling studs with a fat question mark around their collar. It's a big old necklace with a question mark on it, where if they hit, they could be stellar. But they're still good enough and with enough portfolio where you feel like they're not the bottom's not going to fall out. And then 90 to, in this case, 180... It's free-for-all. It's grab the guys with massive fantasy game or massive minutes. The only thing you don't want to do in there is grab someone who isn't playing a ton of minutes who also needs to be on the floor a lot to be successful. That's the only thing you don't want to do. Boring guys that aren't on the floor enough. You know, like, there's no reason that Alex Len should have gone in the 10th round, that kind of thing. Like, but don't and don't take a guy who can't possibly get to fantasy value. Don't take Cody Zeller because there's no point. He might be fine for a few weeks, but he's never going to last. You just, you got to swing for the fences in that area. 90 to 180. Just take a hack at it. You know what's, you just don't know what's going to happen. Take Derek Rose. Let someone laugh at you and then he'll actually be decent. Take Dario Sharch and fall flat on your face, but take Evan Fournier for the bounce back year. There's just but don't take DJ Augustine. Because no matter how many minutes that dude played, he wasn't going to have fantasy value. And that's competitive. In less competitive leagues, you can readjust the benchmarks. First three rounds, you can probably go ultra safe high upside guys with durability. You can probably stretch out a little longer. Maybe not the entire third round because it does thin out a little bit by the back end of it. But let's just for argument's sake still say first two rounds. In less competitive leagues, I think you can make it through the first six rounds with falling studs. Three, four, five, and six falling stars. Upside guys, round seven, maybe round eight, and then your doubly falling guys, probably round nine. You wipe them out by round nine. And then, by about pick 110, you're in the free-for-all. So it's not a huge difference, but it's a big enough one that makes a, a, a colossal change in how you're drafting. Because if you know you're in a hyper-competitive league, you got to go get your upside guys. you got to go get your buzz names around earlier 
or you're not going to get them. They're all going to be gone. The buzz guys I was talking about, which to me this year was generally, and I guess you could throw Mitchell Robinson in that list, but he was going early enough where I don't even, he's not even on the, the register here. Jaron Jackson Jr., Bam Adebayo, Thomas Bryant, and I'm not saying this was our buzz list. This was the comprehensive buzz list. Shea. Let's go Ubre. That's probably sufficient. I'm not going to go any farther than that. Maybe a little farther. Anyway, all of those guys were done by the end of round six in a competitive league. All of those guys were gone by pick 72. In a less competitive league, those guys probably last into the 80s. You have a whole extra round. I mean, if you didn't get your buzz guy in the sixth round, by the end of the sixth round in this draft, you wouldn't have gotten him. Any of them. And that's a big, big difference if you take it to a less competitive league. It buys you an extra round to get your buzz guy. It buys you an extra one to two rounds to get your second tier of falling guys with the question mark. It buys you into the 10th round. I mean, you have nine guys in non-competitive leagues or less competitive leagues that you're pretty confident you're going to be starting all season long. That's big. If your top nine are just dunking on people, you're going to run the table. If your top six are dunking on people, that makes a lot more work. you got to find way more values on the waiver wire. And so that'll be our task going into next season. Whenever the hell fantasy draft season is here in the NBA is determining the competitive level of your league and adjusting accordingly, but being ready for both by having your pages. Make them pages. I don't know how you do it. You can do it on a written piece of paper. You can do it on a side monitor, but have your pages of your top tier, your falling studs, your buzz guys, your falling secondary dudes and then your free-for-all guys your big minutes or big upside late guys who's going to be on the floor 30 plus minutes a game and if they were out there for that long could they be useful because i see a lot of guys drafted every year that even if they were on the floor a lot they couldn't be useful here's an example of a guy that really surprised me how late he went will barton will barton went exceedingly late in fantasy drafts this year. And I know he's coming off an injury-plagued 2018-2019. But this is a guy that we saw when he was healthy was a mid-round guy. And he went in the 14th round of this league that I'm talking about. He went behind the likes of Harrison Barnes. That dude could play 40 minutes a game and he wouldn't be fantasy relevant. He went behind Landry Shamit and Jetty Osman. He went behind Kent Bazemore. Sorry, that was my own pick. I got a pick on myself. We knew Will Barton if he played 30 plus minutes a game had a chance to be fantasy relevant. And he fell to 150. This is why we need to retool the end of our drafts. That dude should have gone way earlier. And those guys will be out there next season as well. As we analyze how teams are going to distribute minutes, you're going to see guys where you're like, oh, you know, this guy can play 30 minutes a game this year, and if he does, he's going to be pretty good. And I'm going to take him at pick 105, and people are going to go, what? And you're going to point back at your last five drafts and go, I don't have my 10th round pick in any of them. 
I don't have my 11th round pick in any of them. Don't let people dissuade you from going a little bit nuts. After pick 90 in hyper-competitive leagues and after pick 110 in less competitive leagues. Do not be dissuaded. We're going to get more aggressive here on Fantasy NBA Today. Tomorrow, back into the mix. That's how that goes. I'm Dan Baspers. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. Hey, uh, you know, given businesses are going to start reopening here, would be a great time for you to join us at Hoop Ball. Bug me on Twitter, at Dan Baspers, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. That'll be that. Talk to you tomorrow, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.